Bible, I would invite you to open with me to Luke chapter 1. So we are actually going to look at the verses that were read earlier by James and Angela Hyzinga. To draw our attention on, you could say, the meditation tonight, Zechariah's prophecy. And so please, with your Bibles open, please hear from the word of the Lord again. I'm going to read through it just to remind us of what they read earlier. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking of his son, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to, to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. God is able to work all things according to the counsel of his will, which is perfect. There was a priest named Zechariah. And we are told in Luke's gospel that he and his wife Elizabeth were righteous before the Lord. They were both advanced in years, meaning they were really old. And Elizabeth was barren, meaning she could not have children. But God, desiring to show that he regards the brokenhearted and to fulfill his promised Messiah, Working all things together for their good, he sends the mighty angel Gabriel with a word for old Zechariah. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah could not believe the news that Gabriel brought him. And he said as much. So the angel Gabriel responded, you could say in judgment on behalf of God. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Nine months later, 
the time came. Elizabeth gave birth to John the Baptist. At the child's circumcision, the neighbors started to call the child Zachariah after his father, which was, that was normal in those days. But in obedience to God, Zachariah wrote on a tablet, his name is John. And immediately his tongue was loosed and he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. Now, imagine that for nine months you were not able to speak. For some of us, that would probably be a really good exercise. So you can't speak for nine months. I want us to get into the, the, the story here with Zechariah. What was going on in his life for those nine months? Many believe that he also was deaf during this time. In Luke chapter 1, verse 62, we read, And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to be called, indicating that he couldn't hear, but he could see. This was all the Lord's doing because of his unbelief. Now, in a sense, Zechariah was being punished. This was a reproof, an admonition, discipline from the Lord. And I want you to hear the, the good news, even in God's discipline. God, we are told, disciplines those whom he loves. And so God is able to use every bit of our reproof, admonishment, discipline, and turn it into great re reward for those who continue to trust him. We see this in Zechariah's life. What would it mean for your life if for nine months you could not hear or say anything? We can only begin to imagine for Zechariah, he spent unknown hours in prayer and meditation upon God's holy scripture, reviewing all that had come before for the people of God, all the signs and shadows and promises, and reflecting upon what all of this would mean for the people of God how God would actually rescue and redeem a people for himself. When his lips were finally loosed, he broke out in a song of thanksgiving. This is famously called the Benedictus, a song of praise or an overflow of thanksgiving. And we want to learn what the Holy Spirit taught Zechariah by just spending a few moments looking at these verses. If you have your Bibles open, I actually want you to look at the end of the passage, verse 79. There's a description given there that I think is really helpful. So we're told that light will come, God's way of, of rescuing his people, but the description of the people is where I want us to focus. Those who sit in darkness, those who are in the shadow of death, they are in need of a guide. And so we could describe a scene like this, a group of people on a long journey. They're on a journey for a city. In the first century, a city was, was a safe harbor. It was a safe place. It had walls around it. If you could make it to the city, there was light, there was life, there was security. So these, these people are, are on a journey. They're coming to an end of another long day's journey. They need to stop for the night, and still there is no city in sight. 
Just imagine if you've been walking for days and days and days, you're hoping that you will finally see that, that city on a hill, that light bursting forth and still nothing. And the, 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 the night is coming and you realize another night we've got to stop. We've got to endure the night and hope that we will make our way in the morning. So they're sitting down in utter darkness. And that description, they're sitting down. There's a sense of hopelessness and despair that has set in. They, at this point, see no way ahead. Now, you may be thinking, okay, that, that's a pretty troubling scene. It's not the end of their trouble. As night falls, there is an ever real danger of being harmed during the night. It would be encapsulated in that phrase, in the shadow of death. They could be attacked by the elements, weather, as we have experienced just the last few days. Just for a moment, think about if you had to go outside, maybe do a chore, prepare the house during the bitter cold, just how harsh that was on you and how grateful you should have been when you walked back in and had a roof over your head. The elements can really take a toll and even bring sickness or death upon people. That was a real factor being out at night. But also wild animals. You did not know what would be coming against you during the night and even possibly robbers. Many troubling things that could happen as they sit in darkness in the shadow of death. Maybe some, some emotions would be going through this group of people. Helplessness, maybe being overwhelmed, unhappy, nervous, anxious, fearful. People in this type of physical situation are keenly aware of their need for help. Isn't that true? If, if, if you found yourself in that situation, you're on high alert realizing I'm, I may need some intervention here. Unfortunately, when it comes to man's spiritual condition, that's not the case. While physically, a group of people like that can be heightened and aware of their great need, but when it comes to our spiritual condition, we hear a, chap a passage like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In their case, the God, lowercase g, of this world has blinded their minds. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers. And listen to this. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, the God of this world, lowercase g, the devil, keeps unbelievers from seeing where their help come fr comes from, seeing the light of the glory of the Son of God, and he also keeps them from seeing their actual plight, their, their actual situation or true condition. Here's, here's the truth. We do not value or love an offer for help unless we are sick or endangered by some enemy. If, if we're not experiencing that kind of um, concern and danger, the offer of help's not going to ring the same way it would as if you were out in the middle of the night and an animal was attacking and you needed help. Massive numbers of people look upon Jesus and the Christmas story as useless. 
Like it's, it's nice. A lot of people gather. It's a tradition. It's a holiday. I get to see family and friends. I don't usually get to see all of those good things. But when it comes to actually understanding why a baby had to be born in a manger, why he had to live a life that we could not live and die a death that all of us deserve to die, to be crucified on a cross and then on the third day be raised from the dead, that story just doesn't land on people who have their eyes blinded by the reality of their condition. Most don't know that they have a terminal illness called unforgiven sin. In fact, all human beings are woefully sinful. There is none righteous, no, not one. And that means that they cannot come into the presence of a holy God. His eyes are too pure to look on sin. And he must condemn and punish for it is essential rebellion against him and a violation of his perfect law. They don't recognize that reality, and they don't recognize that there is actual a fearful enemy described in the Bible, Satan, the devil, as a reality. According to Hebrews chapter 2, we are informed that the devil has the power over death, and that because of this, if you are outside of Christ, this is a reality for you. People are full of fear of death and so live a life of slavery, bondage to that fear. Because if you don't know what's coming after the grave, there is a fear that will capture you. It will enslave you. We also read from the New Testament a description of the devil, 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is as real a threat as a predator physically coming and attacking those travelers that I was describing before. That is a reality, and most are blinded to what's actually happening spiritually in their life. Now, with all of that said, we who are so undeserving, we who have all rebelled against God, hear this from our passage. God has made a provision. God has made a way for those who are far off to be brought near. Why? Why would God do this? In verse 78 of our passage, we read this. Because of the tender mercy of God. That's why he sent his son to visit and redeem. Mercy is God's decision not to pour out wrath on people who deserve it. But to provide for some forgiveness. It is unexpected love and generosity and cannot be, showered upon, cannot be showered upon us as something owed to us. But because mercy is, is freely given, there's no obligation on God's part. It flows and it is beautiful. It can only 
be given to those in a desperate situation who cannot help themselves and lack the capability to earn or pay it back. And there is no better way to describe our situation than utterly and hopelessly desperate. Now, in verse 69 of our passage, Zechariah tells us the how. We just heard the why. It's because of God's tender mercy, not because you deserve it. Now, how did he do that? How did he accomplish this visitation and redemption? God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now, horn of salvation is kind of a unique phrase, probably weird sounding to most of us. But for a moment, just think with me of National Geographic, maybe watching videos of uh, some animals in Africa on the safari. Think about the buffalo bull. The shoulders of those bulls are so tall. The back is as high as my head. Their necks are so thick. And when you look at those two horns, you realize the power that is in this animal, the power that, is, that it has and how it is concentrated in its horns. It's not hard to imagine that the horn of a wild ox or a wild bull would become to an ancient Near Easter, Eastern people a sign of tremendous strength. This horn of salvation. They didn't have Humvees and tanks to go, man, if we just had that kind of military strength. But when they interacted with a, a wild ox and watched the strength that was, that was focused on their horns as they pushed and uh, protected their own, they started to see that kind of horn of salvation is what we need. And what's amazing in the Old Testament, one always finds the conviction that it is God who fights for Israel, God who delivers his people. And when you hear of the, the phrase in the Old Testament, horn of salvation, it's used twice, and it's always referencing God as the one who delivers. King David is the one in 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18 who says these words. He says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. That was in response to God delivering David from his enemies. Now, follow with me. If God is the one who is recognized as the horn of salvation, and then we get this prophecy of old that, that God will send someone a horn. He will make a horn sprout from David. We start to kind of scramble our brains a little bit and try to make sense of this. If God is the one who is always acknowledged as the horn of salvation, and he has promised that out of the house of David, he would raise up a horn of salvation, you've you got to ask, well, what's, what's going on here? What's happening in these promises, these prophecies that will be fulfilled? In the house of his servant David, there would come the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. This is the story of the birth of Christ. 
And this horn of salvation that was always recognized as God is the one who is that horn, the eternal Son of God become flesh, is the manifestation, the fulfillment of that prophecy. That's the, the why and the how he would send his son to be that horn of salvation. And the question is then, for what purpose? What was God's aim? First, we see from our passage, it was to liberate an oppressed people. There actually was a need for the eternal son of God to come in the flesh. There was a great need for those who are oppressed to be liberated. Hear from Romans chapter 6. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. I read that passage from the Apostle Paul just to highlight this reality. The, the oppression that everyone is experiencing outside of Christ is this, slavery to sin. The reality that dying in your sin means eternal separation from God in hell. This is the reality. The punishment of sin is death. So God's aim, the purpose of this horn of salvation being born a babe was to liberate an oppressed people. And then we see more here in this passage. There's a second reason or aim or purpose. It is to create, verse 74, a holy and righteous people who live in no fear because they trust him. What an amazing invitation that we might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Our days while we have breath in our lungs here and for eternity into the new heavens and the new earth. That's what's being offered by this horn of salvation coming in the flesh. If the goal of God's redemption is to be achieved, the gathering of a people who are fearless and righteous, then some amazing things need to be overcome. The, the horn of our salvation must conquer fear and must conquer unrighteousness. And what we see in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is just this. The Messiah, the horn of salvation, would accomplish this through sharing in flesh and blood, that through his suffering death, he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil. How does the horn of salvation conquer our fear? Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 explains that. He becomes flesh, and through his suffering, he conquers death and overcomes sin on our behalf. And then how does this horn of salvation conquer unrighteousness? Because you've got to understand, before a holy God, outside of Christ, anything good that we bring is like filthy rags before God. We are unrighteous. We are unclean. We are guilty. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the great exchange. We bring nothing to the table but unrighteousness and condemnation. Christ takes that from us and he imputes to us his perfect righteousness. We are now clothed in Christ with a righteousness not our own, where we can actually stand before God without fear and righteous, serving him and worshiping all the days of our life because of the horn of salvation becoming flesh and living the life that we needed to live. Our perfect, spotless lamb. Satan may be a roaring lion. That imagery that we read in 1 Peter 5, 8, seeking someone to devour, but the horn of salvation has struck him a death blow with his mighty horns, and for all who find refuge in him, he becomes the only one who provides hope of recovering from this deadly disease of sin and the only protection from Satan, the most dangerous external enemy. Light has shined into darkness. The light shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful to just spend a moment thinking about Zachariah's prophecy, this Benedictus. What, a, what an awesome privilege to think about what it would be like to not be able to speak for so long, to spend time thinking about your wonderful promises. And then once his lips were loose for the, the, the glory to come forth, the truth inspired by the Spirit of God of what this horn of salvation would accomplish for your people. The forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life, and what we see at the very end of the passage, peace. There is only one way for us to have true peace, and it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray by the aid of the Spirit, that these truths would land on us hard this night as we think about the importance of the incarnation, the first coming, and as your people long for the second. And we pray all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.